You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and this week, Tom sits down with CEO of Lumina Foundation, Jamie Marisotis, to discuss his new book, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. In this book, Jamie makes the case that the question is not what is the future of work, it is what is the work of the future. He also unpacks a new paradigm of work, one that consists of learning, earning, and serving. These are long-standing Getting Smart tenants that we have followed in our Future of Work series and in the new book by Tom Vanderark and Dr. Emily Liebtag titled Difference Making at the Heart of Learning. Let's listen in to learn more. Jamie Marisotis, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. Hey, good to be with you, Jamie. Uh, congrats on the new book, uh, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's an exciting time, interesting time to be talking about human work when we're, uh, many of us are working remotely like this. It, uh, it is, Jamie. Um, I, in in uh, doing our research, I, I realized for the first time that you've, you've been um, in the post-secondary policy space really for 30 years. You got a very early start. Uh, you ran a national, as a young man, you ran a national commission on financing uh, uh, post-secondary. How, how did you land that job? So, you know, my, my career pathway has always been in this space of post-high school learning. I'm a, uh, a first-generation college student, first-generation graduate. Uh, I used to tell people all the time, Tom, that I'm a walking advertisement for every financial aid and support program you, you could ever think of. And I managed to get my first job out of college, uh, in part just because I wanted to work in public policy in the Washington office of the college board. And I realized in doing the research that I was doing there that, uh, in fact, there was millions of people like me who had had the experience of being first generation, no one to help you guide the path. And I felt like I was lucky. Um, I, w I had good fortune, good mentors. My parents didn't know what college was, except that we were going. And I realized at that moment that my path in life was to make luck, not the strategy, but to actually have a plan. And so I ended up uh, working as a policy analyst, did consulting for a few years. And then in the early 90s, this bipartisan federal commission was created. Uh, and it was appointed by the president and congressional leadership. And um, I ended up as the executive director because I had expertise in the space. I was still in my late 20s, as, as you point out. And we had the good fortune of being bipartisan and um, actually issuing our report just as a new president was being inaugurated. So it was a Bush era commission whose report came out as President Clinton was being inaugurated. And the commission's claim to fame was that we were the place that helped popularize the idea of direct student loans. Although um, it took all the way to President Obama before that actually became a reality. So it shows you that right. government moves, moves slowly. But I, I've always been on the, on the side of improving access and success, particularly for students of color, uh, for low-income students and for students like myself, who are who are the first in their family to go, and that commission really um, springboarded you into into founding or co-founding uh, the Institute for Higher Education Policy, which is still going uh, strong and a real contributor to uh, to excellence and and equity. Uh, it's a, a policy and action shop. Uh, you, you must be proud of the contribution uh, they they continue to make. Extremely proud and impressed with the leadership that uh, Michelle Cooper, who's been the CEO now for more than a decade, um, has, has shown. Uh, it was at the time that I created it in 1993, 
uh, with Colleen O'Brien, it, it basically was a, a new idea to have such a narrowly focused think tank. Uh, this idea of, as you point out, a, a research and action shop that was focused on the space of post-high school learning and particularly access and success for students. Uh, today, it's more common, but I'm really proud of the fact that the organization continues to focus on equity. Um, I think it's one of the leaders when it comes to issues related to racial equity in this country and is very much focused on putting both new ideas and helping to create the momentum for the change that's necessary uh, in order to achieve the ideas that come out of the research. In uh, 2008, you had the chance to join the um, newish Illumina Foundation. They'd been around for a few years, but were kind of a new generation uh, philanthropy. What, what was uh, interesting to you about that opportunity? Yeah, I always thought that I was going to spend my career, honestly, in the space of, of D.C. public policy. It never occurred to me that I would work in philanthropy. But you know, one of the opportunities that Lumina presented, and I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do this now for I'm now in my 13th year, is that I recognize that philanthropy has these advantages that you don't necessarily have in other contexts. So I've always been focused on system change and wanting to achieve change at scale. Well, philanthropy's got this capacity to take risks. Um, I'd argue, and I've argued with my team, that we have a responsibility to take risks that others can't because we have independent assets and because we're not directly accountable to, you know, to voters or shareholders the way government or public co companies might be. And, you know, sometimes I think uh, philanthropy needs to exercise more of that risk taking. Uh, but I, I, I saw it as an opportunity to take risk, to help actually catalyze the country towards this big national goal uh, that Lumen has set out of 60% of Americans having a high quality degree, certificate, or other credential by 2025, and that turned out to be a good reason. You know, you can also, um, in philanthropy, act with a long view uh, in ways, again, that are different than, than government and business, but you also don't even have to think about things like annual budget cycles, right? So in your, your experience in philanthropy, you know this, that, in fact, you can sort of play a longer game because you've got that capacity. And I was also intrigued um, by the opportunity at Lumina because not only was it focused on an issue area that you know, was my life's passion, post-high school learning, but they had already demonstrated this capacity to deal with change at scale. In other words, we know that foundations um, have resources that are really dwarfed by the government, you know, the budgets of governments or, or by the, you know, market valuations of large companies, but there's real power in convening and using the bully pulpit. And I saw it as an opportunity that, you know, as I said, I'm very fortunate to have taken advantage of. I want to pick up on the uh, idea of risk-taking, uh, Jamie. I've, I've been critical of sort of modern American uh, philanthropy. While generous, it, I don't think um, the sector's taken enough risk because um, it really is the social space where you have risk capital, where we ought to be trying new things. And I, I appreciate the efforts you've made at Lumina, not only to do policy advocacy, but to focus on new learning models. You've been a leader in competency-based learning, uh, but you, Lumen has also been a leader in impact investing. Uh, really, for a decade, you, you've uh, been carving out new space there and showing, uh, showing the, the sector what's possible. So I appreciate that focus. Anything else you want to add on, on yeah, impact just... investing as an emerging strategy? 
merely that in philanthropy, we have lots of tools in the toolbox. We are grant makers. As I said, we are conveners. We've got this uh, capacity to use our, our, our bully pulpits in interesting ways, but we have endowments and we have the capacity to leverage private capital in ways that maybe others won't because we can take first risk because we, uh, we aren't uh, primarily interested in making a profit. Um, and so uh, from our vantage point, uh, we've seen it as a net add to our mission, to our, to our social mission. In the Luminous case, we're one of the only private foundations still that does direct equity investing in individual companies. In our case, it's mostly in startups and, and companies that are sort of moving up through series, series A or so. We tend not to go much higher in the, in the chain than that. But our efforts are really about helping to build companies that can actually achieve large-scale impact and um, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we've done and you know, we've now got a portfolio of, of uh, about 15 companies and, and we feel very good about that work. Uh, Jamie, in 2015 uh, you published a book called America Needs Talent um, and it, it uh, in, in some respects like Getting Smart, I a book I published a couple years before just argued uh, that the world needs to get smarter, that we need to skill up both in this country and around the globe. Um, it, it was a good but pretty standard argument. Um, the, the tone of, of your new book is, um, is, is really different. Um, I'd love to have you just headline uh, for me a few of the changes that you've seen in, in, since publishing your last book and um, what, what are the key observations that really led to uh, your new book, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines? And no, it's a very good observation because America Needs Talent was really about this idea that we had to change the learning enterprise um, in ways that uh, will sort of, with a rising demand for talent, um, actually help us get there. And so, you know, in America Needs Talent, I said, you know, ultimately what we have to do is um, ensure that you know, talent, which is knowledge, skills, and abilities that are honed by education and experience, um, not only helps individuals, but helps all of us as a society. And so we've got to do a better job with that. And so that includes higher education, it includes immigration, it includes lots of, lots of different strategies, urban policy, et cetera. Um, you know, as we talked about earlier, I spent my life at this intersection of learning and work and trying to make it better, trying to serve more people and certainly serve more diverse, equitable populations, generally improving the system of learning for individuals in society. But I think those of us who are in the education sphere are increasingly being asked this question, Tom, which is for what? You know, what is education for? And so I set out to try to explore that question and came back with the answer, which is simply that we have to prepare people for human work, which is the work that only humans can do. And and we know that work is changing in, in uh, really unprecedented ways. Technology, AI is taking over many of the, the tasks that people used to do. Uh, I'm, I'm not as fixated as others are on this uh, idea of the robot zombie apocalypse and the, and the robots are gonna eat our jobs. I'm much more interested in the changing nature of the tasks associated with work and what those tasks are that require our unique human abilities. In other words, the things that only uh, humans can do. And, you know, what I concluded is that uh, we're different than machines in many ways, but I think the most important is that for us as humans, work matters. And people work not only because it helps them 
economically. You know, we obviously need to make money, but that it offers them social mobility and personal satisfaction and dignity and meaning and purpose. And so the book really sort of explores that idea, gets into these concepts around uh, how human work will really change and what we need to develop we need to develop when it comes to human work, and also you know how we will prepare individuals and society for what I think is uh, a rapidly changing world of work, probably accelerated by by the events of 2020. I, I do appreciate the the uh, sense of humility that you took into chapter one when um, the the future work people like me can make broad pronouncements about it. And I, I do appreciate that you um, took time to describe um, the, the future work is, is varied for the seven, almost eight billion people that share this planet. And it's easy to take a, a privileged um, view of, uh, of future work. So I, thanks for that nuanced and thoughtful approach. Um, the second chapter is, does a really nice job of making the, the case for um, the work that only humans can do. Um, you, you said that this, it, it blends uh, traits such as compassion, empathy, and ethics, and our uh, developed skills uh, for problem solving and integrative skills. Um, so that sounds like a, kind of a, a summary of a new outcome framework. Um, for learning institutions. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I, th I think that is fair. You know, I will say that um, part of me got, um, as I was working on the book and in the years uh, leading up to it, got increasingly frustrated with the conversation about the future of work as opposed to what I say in the book is the work of the future. And, and it sounds like a semantic game, but my concern about the future of work is that uh, those events that I was participating in, those convenings, those conversations, we're increasingly questioning whether or not humans will be working. It questioned the idea of work itself. Right. My view is humans want to work. It brings shape and meaning to our lives. It's not just about a job, but that the big issue here is that machines are better at things like repetition and speed and patterns, uh, things that can be reduced to an algorithm, but machines right. can't understand subtlety and nuance and, they don't know how to interact with people. People are unpredictable. And so the more interaction with humans, the less likely that it can be done by machines. So I don't think work is going away, but it's being transformed into this work of, of, of the future, the, the work that only humans can do. And the kinds of things that we need to be focusing on, I think in terms of the learning paradigm, is developing our human traits and, and capabilities. So our human traits like compassion, and empathy and ethical decision-making. Again, these are things that uh, machines can't do, can't possess. And we need to combine that with developing our human capabilities, our, our critical analysis ability, our communication ability, our ability to collaborate, to be creative, uh, to, to develop our, our, our knowledge skills uh, in nonlinear pathways. All of those things, I think, are what need to go into um, rethinking the system of learning. And really what I say in the book is developing a large scale continuous system for deploying quality learning that's gonna prepare people for, for human work and life in this, in this new age. Nice, uh, nicely put. I, I appreciate um, that combination of traits and capabilities that you laid out 
Um, Jamie, the, the core insight uh, of the book, um, in, in my view, is that it's kind of summarized in this simple but powerful uh, statement that the new paradigm of human work is learning, earning, and serving. Uh, talk, talk about that. So the way I tend to think about work is this, you know, we, we have often assumed and sometimes we've conflated the ideas of work and a job. Look, people need a job uh, because a job does something very important, which is that it provides you with financial resources to, to help you live your life and, and for you to be successful in life, um, you need resources in order to be able to do that. But here I'm talking about something different, which is this idea that work and the things that make us uniquely human are things that we get satisfaction from, things that we value. And, you know, when you combine learning, which is a process that uh, uh, must be continuous over the course of lifetime, earning, which is a requirement for us to be able to do the work that I was doing, and serving others uh, that magnifies and I think enhances learning, um, it's this virtuous cycle of earning, learning, and serving others that I think is really important. And so we can think in very concrete ways about how this plays out. You know, people like you and I have talked about work-integrated learning models for a while, but we should be talking about learning-integrated work models and even service-integrated work models because humans want to learn, they want to earn, and they want to serve over the course of their lifetime. And it is this ongoing, continuous cycle of learning, earning, and serving that I think makes us uniquely humans and allows us to, to be human workers in this, in this technology-mediated era that, we're, that we live in. Um, my my um, ultimate aim here is for us to think about how we can prepare the human workers for this work that humans can only do and actually set out to actually create an integrated ecosystem of human work that allows that to, uh, to, to, you know, to be developed. Your, your book um, sort of takes on, it, it challenges the traditional um, academic disdain uh, f for the, the workplace. It says uh, our education system does not do a good job of developing uh, skills that human work requires in large part because they're often divorced from the settings which humans work, uh, where human work is actually performed. So how, how do you see those um, uh, really coming together um, to better integrate work and learning. So part of part of the issue I think we've got to do is sort of make sense of what's happening in the world now as as a great illustration of that. So if you look at COVID, if you look at the awakening around racial injustice that we've seen in this country, um, we have to understand that these ideas of learning and working coming together and that concept of serving others as being um, um, integral to who we are as humans really comes together in this moment where we've seen these disparate impacts um, of COVID-19, what's happened not only to, um, to, to people's jobs, but also the disparate impact that we've seen by, by race and income. So if we look about how we do those things, like developing our human attributes, those, those traits and capabilities that I was talking about, we've got to actually think about how we can actually integrate learning and work in, in new ways. And that means that we've got to be developing our work environments that take into account the diversity of the people who are working and understand and respect the viewpoints that they bring to the table. 
This is not sort of bringing one perspective, but bringing a variety of perspectives to the learning model that's really important. We've got to think about how uh, the fact that uh, many of the people who have lost jobs in this, in this um, era are not going to get those jobs back and that we've got to prepare them for this human work era where employers, uh, where the learning enterprise, the learning institutions, um, and frankly, the, the nonprofit sector, including philanthropy, are going to have to organize themselves around this new way of thinking when it comes to preparing people for learning and work. Um, you know, and I also would say that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to sort of recognize that the era that we're in, we're not going to go back to normal. Uh, normal is not something that I think uh, we should uh, want to achieve because normal wasn't so great for an awful lot of people in the old model. And so, you know, employers are going to have to embrace the diversity of their employees and their customers and their communities. They're going to need to define the knowledge, skills, and abilities of their workers, those diverse workers that I was talking about, and ensure that they can develop their talents throughout their careers. And, you know, I think um, the people like us, the, the people who work on the education side of the equation, need to question the assumptions around the current systems. We've got to put the learner worker, you know, we used to call them students, but really, they are learner workers. They are people who are going to be doing learning and working and serving others over the course of their entire lifetime, put them in the center and ensure the success of all students. Uh, we'll need to make sure that um, the learning that they get in our learning institutions is clear, it's transparent, so that everybody understands it. Um, we need to develop their capacities, not just in sort of content areas, things like STEM, but also those human traits and, and capabilities. So this is both the challenge and the opportunity, I think, um, laid bare by COVID and, and racial injustice in the current environment, but it's an opportunity in my view. I'm optimistic, as you saw in the book at the end of the day, that we can actually solve these problems because I think we will have no choice. I don't think we will stand for the idea that machines will be doing things that we as humans know we can do better, but we must figure out how to work with the machines, let the machines do the things that they are faster uh, and more capable of doing and develop our human traits and capabilities so that we can do the work that makes us successful in our communities and successful as individuals. I appreciate that. Um, a, a good example, of, we had uh, Conrad Wolfram on the podcast last month um, talking about the math fix. And he said, "We it's time to let the machines do the, the calculating. What we need people to do are to learn how to solve big complicated problems. So setting up problems and then learning how to um, use smart tools to interrogate complex systems, that's the support of, that's the sort of uh, complex problem solving that we should be teaching. Um, those skills are more important than long division or factoring polynomials. It's really the algebraic reasoning and math modeling. Uh, I, I think that's an example of what you're describing of shifting to the skills that are um, uniquely human. That's exactly right. And, you know, you can think about an array of, of kinds of jobs that people will be doing or kinds of work that people will be doing in the future uh, that reflects this. Uh, you know, it is that if the machines are able to do things that they really are better at, we've got to be doing the kinds of things that we are better. I opened the book with this example of this guy who worked on, on the assembly line at, at Cummins Engine Company, 
who was doing what lots of assembly line workers did 20 years ago, which is you know putting engines into Ram pickup trucks. But over time, the machines developed more and more of these capabilities. And what Joel Lewis is his name ended up doing was developing his abilities to understand the, the machines and technology, design the systems, and they're, they're robots at, at uh, Cummins, they call them cobots, collaborative robots. They are essentially, in, a, in an interesting way, the peers of the human workers. And part of what he does is design the systems um, that run the cobots. And, and in a way, he's a trainer of the robots. Uh, mm-hmm. This is where this idea of bringing um, technology and people together in one place um, is, there's a net plus for us as humans. It's the work that only we can do. So, you know, you've got that and you've got um, all kinds of jobs, things like teaching, social worker, um, you know, your, your, your next minister isn't going to be a, a machine, it's going to be a human. We need to be developing a whole array of these human traits and capabilities and developing over the course of our lifetimes. That, that's the human work of the future. Jamie, um, in terms of bringing um, work and learning together, you suggest that credentials a, a transparent um, system of credentialing can be part of, of, of how learning institutions and uh, work environments um, c- connect. Um, how, how do we get better at credentialing um, in general and particularly around the, the skills that matter most? You know, here I think we've got two problems. One is that the credentials themselves right now are not very transparent. In other words, What's behind them is not very well understood. Um, we've got um, lots of examples of credentials that seem to do well in labor markets, but then in other cases don't do well at all. And yet some of the credentials that don't do well in labor markets do prepare people for other types of things in life that allow them to be successful. So part of what we need to figure out is what do people know and what can they do with a certificate, a certification, a license, a degree, whatever it may be, And then how do we create a system, an interoperable system of those credentials that allow people, again, over the course of their lifetime, to develop this sort of interconnected network of these credentials that give them a chance to ratchet their way up uh, in their their lifetime of work. And I think it's really important for us to focus on, on those issues and make sure that the credentials have meaning, that what's behind them is is clear, to the worker, to the employer, um, even to, to government, uh, and then that we actually make sure that over the course of a lifetime, people can develop a series of these credentials that connect to each other so that they can efficiently develop their human work capabilities and be true learners, earners, and servers over the course of their lifetime. Jamie, you, you point to the Europass system as an example of a, a pretty comprehensive, relatively dynamic system is that what we should be shooting for in america yeah it's a great example of where you know countries that um have literally had historic rivalries wars and things like that were able to overcome those things um in the european context and actually create this common market uh for linking uh credentials the learning enterprise with work uh through efforts like like the europass and and, you know, what we need is more of that. Uh, you know, as I've, as I've said to people, if France and Germany can figure out how to create a system that works across borders, we should be able to figure out one where Indiana and Illinois can do the same. 
And um, yet, uh, in many cases, we have these stovepipes um, driven by uh, the, the sort of distinctions, the artificial distinctions that we have, state lines, school districts, uh, university systems, et cetera, that I don't think make sense in the modern world. Um, math in Kentucky is math in Maine. Um, we, what we should uh, better uh, be able to do is to understand how the math that you learn connects to the credentials that you're getting and how those credentials ultimately lead to a successful uh, human work life. I appreciate that. I, I'm a big fan of credentialing, but it is, it's clear that credentialing and, and licensure system can grow stale and can be used to, uh, to actually block entrance into, uh, into a particular occupation. So if, if um, these definitions are kept um, dynamic and that we keep equity uh, in, in the forefront, I think we can build credentialing systems that work for everybody. I think you, you uh, try to describe that in the book. I, I think your observation, though, is worth underscoring here, which is that the, the risk of the rapidly changing nature of learning and work that we're seeing is that we're going to further disadvantage populations that have had historic disadvantages particularly African-Americans, the Latinx population, and Native Americans in ways that will further exacerbate these inequities and, and injustices. So we've got to design these systems to actually take those perspectives, those vantage points into account. Um, and here, I think um, these questions about um, equity and quality in the learning enterprise are really, really important for us to, to, to better understand. You know, if you think at the, about the ways in which um, we've, we've um, gotten to where we are, we've had unfair policies and actions and beliefs over hundreds of years that were specifically designed to disadvantage these communities of color. So uh, the only way to get out of that box is to design these learning systems with their full engagement and being able to develop these learning systems that have the right combination of the academic, the financial, and the social supports that are necessary is, is really important. Um, we also need to make sure that as we design those systems, that we actually make sure that uh, the, the learning um, represents both quality and equity as co-equals in the equation. By that, I mean that we cannot see them as opposing forces in the system this is an old saw that, in fact, has further disadvantaged these populations that if you increase equity, you reduce quality. But what we know about quality standards and quality learning is that a key component of quality is where the knowledge is coming from and how it's being imparted. And so quality and equity, it seems to me, are interconnected. Uh, without quality, I don't think you can have equity and without equity, I think this idea of quality is really a, a hollow echo of what the system should be. Jamie, let's uh, close out with a, uh, a few thoughts on uh, revolutionizing uh, democratic society. This is a, um, a really important topic that you uh, deal with in your closing chapter, uh, chapter six. Um, maybe to start with, just describe what's the connection between your view of of human work and the contribution that it can uh, make to strengthening uh, democratic society. It's it's interesting the um, the reaction that I've gotten the the 
to the book um, um, from the early reviewers is that uh, this is the most surprising and in some ways um, enlightening part of the book because it's different. You know, here I think, um, look, we live in an area where there has been this incredible rise in authoritarianism and anti-democratic tendencies around the world. And, you know, one of the things that we know about authoritarianism is that it prefers conformity. Authoritarians stoke fear, uh, fear of change. Uh, people who, um, uh, who, who want to be afraid of the other. And uh, uh, so, you know, part of what I think we've seen um, in this environment of increasing authoritarianism is a threat to liberal democracy and the diversity of ideas, of expressions and beliefs uh, that I think um, democracies are designed to protect. So when people lose opportunity or they never had it, this tends to spike. One of the things that we know from research, and there's actually very recent re research from the Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce that points this out, is that uh, you know we live in a world of these information bubbles that tends to reinforce these anti-democratic tendencies. Um, so there's false information out there now about COVID. Um, that false information has mostly impacted people with lower levels of education. Um, you know we know that people who have lower levels of education tend to find authoritarian leaders. Um, alluring because they think that they can actually do something to create change. Um, there's actually a, something called the World Value Survey that um, a quarter of people with a high school credential or less in the United States says military rule would be a good way to govern our country. And so the best way to push back against all of this is to develop a human work ecosystem where people actually develop their human traits and abilities to cultivate that critical thinking, that ethical decision-making, that analytic reasoning, all the things that we talked about earlier that are democracy-enhancing traits uh, in a lot more people. Um, ultimately, this is about engaging in, in active citizenship and the free expression of ideas and combating that uh, in the human work eco ecosystem um, with people who've developed those, those ideas uh, through, through structured learning enterprises. So, you know, human work, you know, as we talked about earlier, it offers meaning and purpose and a chance for individual and shared prosperity. The best way to do that is to make sure that it happens in a democratic context and make sure that uh, we allow people to, to learn freely um, and without uh, fear of, of what a government or others might do. Uh, Jimmy, I, I appreciate the first uh, five chapters of... Um human work in the age of smart machines, but uh, I, I think this last one is a is such an important contribution. Um, thanks for your new book. Uh, everybody should get, uh, get a copy of it. It would make a terrific uh, book for um, a faculty uh, in a school district or in a, a college. Uh, I think anybody that's got a, a book study at work or with friends would enjoy the book. Uh, Jamie, it's a great contribution, and we uh, appreciate you joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Great to be with you, and thank you for all the great work that you do. A big thanks to Jamie for joining us on this week's episode. We greatly appreciate his dedication to post-secondary success and keeping the things that really matter at the core of work and learning. For more on how to start doing meaningful work in school, check out episode 249 with Eric Williams from Loudoun County Public Schools. Tom's newest book, co-authored by Dr. Emily Liebtag, is now available for purchase. 
Difference Making at the Heart of Learning explores new learning priorities centered around making a difference and a framework based on the 25 most important issues of our time. We know that students learn more when they feel a sense of purpose. With adults to help guide them, they'll be ready to make a difference and shape the world to come. We've got a link in the show notes so you can learn more about the book and we'll have more episodes to explore difference making this month. That's it for today, listeners. But before you go, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And as always, thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.